You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's open our Bibles to the scripture reading this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-28 Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you which you received, on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn. Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him 
who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. This morning we're considering God's Word as it has been summarized and confessed by the church in Lord's Day 17 of the Hatterberg Catechism. Here we confess, how does Christ's resurrection benefit us? First, by His resurrection, He has overcome death so that He could make a share in the righteousness which He had obtained for us by His death. Second, by His power, we too are raised up to a new life. Third, Christ's resurrection is to us a sure pledge of our glorious resurrection. Beloved congregation, Christ. Today, once again, is the Lord's Day. Wonderful day of rest and worship. We call it the Lord's Day. And we find that expression used in Scripture a number of places. Revelation 1, verse 10, John says that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. In Acts 20, verse 7, we're told that it was customary for believers to gather on the first day of the week. Find the same thing in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. What was so special about the first day of the week? What is it about the first day that brought the church to call it the Lord's Day? I think we all know the answer. Because it was on the first day, Sunday, that the Lord Jesus rose from the dead. This is the day we still come together as believers. And one of the reasons we do that is to remember and to celebrate the empty tomb. Christ's resurrection. His victory over Satan, sin, and death. The Catechism deals with this wonderful truth in the question and answer we're looking at this morning. Back in Lord's Day 15, in question and answer 39, the Catechism asks the question whether it makes a difference that the Lord Jesus was crucified. Could he have died in a different way? And the answer from the Bible is no. He had to be crucified to take our curse on himself. Now we come to Lord's Day 17, we could ask a similar question. Could the Lord Jesus have stayed dead and still be our Savior? After all, he had paid for our sins, hadn't he? Isn't that all we need? Somebody to pay for our sins? So was it absolutely necessary for him also to rise from the dead? When he died, he went to be with the Father. He told the, the criminal on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. His body was dead, but his soul remained alive, went to be with the Father. So why did his body have to rise from the dead for him to be our Savior? Well, the simple answer is that if the Lord Jesus had remained dead, then death would have had the victory. The Lord Jesus had to rise from the dead in order to conquer death. As you see, where there is death, there is sin. Sin and death go together. So Christ's redemptive work wasn't totally finished when he died on the cross. To save us from sin and death, he also had to rise from the dead. 
That point is made in John 20, verse 9, where it says, they still did not understand from Scripture, talking about the apostles, that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Literally, it says that it was necessary for Jesus to rise from the dead. The Lord Jesus had to rise again so that he could conquer death and show that he is infinitely stronger than death. And he did that for us, for our benefit, for our comfort. And we're going to consider that comfort this morning, and we'll see that the resurrection is a certain fact, first of all, second of all, a sure pledge, and then finally, a sound motivation. The young man and his friends were excited because there was a new teacher at the school. The new teacher, the new professor, was not much older than them. He was only 32 years old. Finally, they thought to themselves, finally there's some fresh young blood here at the school. His name was Professor Rauenhoff a professor of church history. In one of his first lectures, Professor Rauenhoff discussed the resurrection of Christ. The young man sat at his desk and, and listened intently. This is very interesting. Professor Rauenhoff pointed out that the, the Bible spoke very clearly and distinctly about the resurrection. However, he said, the Bible often uses symbolic language. Moreover, no rational, modern man could actually believe that Christ's body was historically raised from the dead. That would be against all the laws of nature. Everybody knows that those laws simply cannot be broken. As the professor finished speaking, the young man and his friends, they leapt from their seats and they started clapping their hands. Finally, here was a professor who got it. He understood. Finally, they had a teacher who was with the times. The young man, 23 years old, was enthralled with a professor who had the courage to say what everybody else was thinking. Well, that story took place in 1860 in the Netherlands at the University of Leiden. The students were all men studying to become ministers in the Reformed Church of the Netherlands. The young man was Abraham Kuyper. Now eventually, God would grab hold of Abraham Kuyper and convert him in a very powerful way. And Kuiper would become a mighty tool in, in God's hand to bring reformation to the Netherlands because this way of thinking that we were talking about was everywhere. And it was not only with the resurrection, it was with a lot of other things as well. Whether we realize it or not, many of us are reformed, confessionally reformed today because of Kuiper. Later in life, Kuiper confessed that he was still haunted by the fact that he had applauded the denial of Christ's resurrection. With this denial, he had grieved his Lord and Savior. And this weighed on him. This bothered him immensely. 
For the first 18 centuries of church history, the resurrection of Christ was nearly universally accepted by Christians as a fact of history. In the 18th century, however, the Enlightenment came along, the so-called Age of Reason. Many people, including people who called themselves Christians, doubted the possibility of miracles, either today or in times past. The supernatural, they said, simply, you, you can't observe it. In the 19th century, things went further with the development of what we call modernism. Professor Rauenhoff, the professor we mentioned a few moments ago, has been dubbed the defender of modernism. Modernism says that if we can't see it, if we can't run an experiment to prove it, then it doesn't exist and it isn't possible. Many Christians, or people who called themselves Christians in the 19th century, accepted the philosophy of modernism, and this led them to deny the resurrection as a historical fact. They agreed that there probably was a man named Jesus, and he died, but he could not rise from the dead. That simply doesn't happen. It's never happened, and it never will happen. Now, modernism held sway for a long time, very long time. After the Second World War, however, many people started to move away from modern, modernist thinking and into what we today call postmodernism. Postmodernism says that truth is relative. And when it comes to the resurrection, well, if it works for you to believe it, if it works for you to believe it's true, then you go ahead. You believe it. It's fine. It can be true for you, but it doesn't have to be true for me. And those of you familiar with these things will know that this is somewhat of a, a simplification, but that is the, the basic direction of these ways of thinking. Now, if we, if we trace this development and try to summarize it, it looks something like this. During the time before and after the Reformation, people argued and discussed what God said. The burning question was, what did God say? During the Enlightenment and during the period of modernism, the issue became, did God really say? And today, we can summarize the attitude of many with the jaded catchword of our era, whatever. Who cares? If you want to believe it, go ahead. Whatever. Now, Christians have reacted to these attitudes in different ways. One of those ways is captured in a popular hymn that celebrates Christ's resurrection. Part of the chorus goes like this. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. According to this hymn writer, we know that the resurrection is true because of what we feel in ourselves. He lives within my heart. Not because it's a historical fact. Maybe that's somewhere in the background. But it's first of all because of what I feel. And in today's world, in today's context, that's likely to simply evoke a response something like, oh, that's nice that you feel that way. I'm glad it works for you. 
This is a dangerous way of thinking about the resurrection. It's dangerous because we're basing our faith on what we feel rather than on what has been objectively revealed to us in God's Word as a historical fact. And what happens when I have a day that I I don't feel that anymore? That I don't feel that He lives within my heart? I have a down day. Does that mean that the resurrection is no longer true? It's no longer a true fact of history? Because I don't feel it, does it mean that it isn't true? Where's the comfort in thinking that way? So rather than basing our faith in the risen Christ on our feelings, we need to go back to the Word of God. Our faith has to be grounded on the public, objective truth of the Word of God, the witness of the apostles. We have to get back to asking the old question, what does the Bible say? And so what does it say about Christ's resurrection? Well, first of all, we have the historical accounts of the resurrection found in the Gospels. All of the four Gospels tell us that Christ rose from the dead. And in each of these accounts, if you look at them carefully, there's no evidence of symbolic language or the use of metaphors. There's also no evidence of tampering with the truth. For instance, someone wanting to fabricate the story or make it up would never dreamt of having women as the first witnesses. Because in biblical times, women didn't have a lot of credibility as witnesses. And there are other factors that we could add to that as well. And the conclusion that is is in the Gospels, we see a clear picture of a historical event. We go to the book of Acts, we see the same picture. In Acts 10, for instance, Peter was visiting Cornelius and told him about everything that had happened with Christ. In verse 39... He told them that the apostles all witnessed everything that happened, including his death. And then in verses 40 to 41, we read these words, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. That was Peter. Paul gives a similar testimony in his epistles. For instance, in the passage we read from 1 Corinthians 15, there Paul clearly says that there were numerous witnesses to the historical fact of Christ's resurrection. Again, there's no symbolism, there's no metaphors. According to Paul, he appeared to more than 500 people. And if we remember what we learned last week about following the natural literary sense of a passage, we we can only conclude that there were literally 500, more than 500 people who saw Jesus alive in the days after his resurrection. Most of those people were still alive when Paul wrote this epistle to the Corinthians. That means the Corinthians could go to those people and ask them what they saw. 
for us who take the Bible seriously as God's inspired Word, there's no question about it. No question that the resurrection was a historical event. Happened in real time in history. But what happens when we're speaking to people who don't believe that the Bible is God's Word? Now, I'm not going to give a lecture here in apologetics about how to defend our faith. Just give you one thing to consider. You know, the fact that they don't believe what the Bible says, or that they don't believe that the Bible is the Word of God, doesn't change the fact that the resurrection is an objective historical reality. Think of what happened on September 11th. 2001. I wasn't in New York City that day. I didn't see with my my very own two eyes those planes flying into the World Trade Center. Now I could say, well, if I didn't see it, then it didn't really happen. I don't care what anybody else says, it didn't happen because I didn't see it. We all know, don't we, that that would be foolish to say something like that. Why is that? Because there were many witnesses who did see it happen with their own eyes. And what I choose to do with that cannot change the fact that it happened. It is a historical fact attested to by witnesses. And so it is with the resurrection. The onus is on the unbeliever to prove that the witnesses mentioned in Scripture are unreliable, that they either lied or were mistaken. And so, beloved, gently challenge your unbelieving friends to read the Bible for themselves and see what it says. The Word of God is powerful. It can change hearts. It can open minds for people to believe the truth. It can penetrate even the most jaded people and bring them not only to the cross, but also to the empty tomb. Now the Word of God not only proclaims the resurrection as a certain fact of history, it also teaches us that it is a sure pledge We find that mentioned in the Catechism as the third benefit of Christ's resurrection. I should mention in passing that there are two other benefits as well. Those two benefits have to do with justification and sanctification. And we heard a lot about those two subjects last week, though we didn't directly tie it into Christ's resurrection. It does, as you can see in the Catechism, tie in. But because we dealt with those two things last week, I want to really here this morning focus on the third benefit, what we call our glorification. We confess that Christ's resurrection is to us a sure pledge of our glorious resurrection. Now here's some good news for pilgrims making their way through a broken world. We believe that Christ's resurrection has something to say for the future. Right now, we live in a world that's been vandalized by sin and death. And some of us 
young and old alike, know that too well. We experience that in our in our bodies. Diabetes, heart troubles, seizures, and and we could go on and on. And if we add in the the mental difficulties that some of us face, this list would get even longer. We think to ourselves, what a messed up, broken world. But Christ's resurrection brings the promise of something better into the picture. Something for the future. His resurrection is a sure pledge of our glorious resurrection. Now Paul develops this to some length in 1 Corinthians 15. In verse 20, he says that Christ is the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. And of course, we understand fallen asleep to mean those who have died in the Lord. Firstfruits. He uses the same word, firstfruits, in, in verse 23, but each in his own turn. Christ, the firstfruits. The picture here is of a farm, an orchard or a vineyard. At a certain point, a portion of the crop is the first to get ripe. This holds out a promise that the rest of the crop will soon follow. When the farmer takes the fruit in his hand and bites into it, and the sweet taste rolls over his tongue, he knows that things are good and getting better. And so it is with Christ's resurrection. It is the first fruits of our glorification. When we know from Scripture and we believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the third day, that's like biting into the sweet first fruits of the harvest that's soon coming. When that harvest comes, our bodies, these bodies, will be raised through some miracle of God, and the Bible doesn't explain all the details of how this will happen, these bodies that we have right now, this flesh and blood, will be reunited with our souls. It means that we're not going to spend eternity as disembodied spirits. We will get our bodies back. However, they will be different. They will be glorified bodies. God's promise is that there will be no diabetes in your glorified state. There will be no heart troubles, no seizures, no depression, no chronic health difficulties, either physical or mental. We will be whole and complete, even as Christ our Lord is. You know, what a wonderful thing to look forward to. When we believe that we have a risen Lord, we can be assured that His victory extends over every aspect of our lives. His resurrection is His promise to you that He will not leave you as you are. Christ has conquered sin and death and how that affects your relationship with God. But He will also conquer sin and death and how it affects you right now in this broken world. What a glorious Savior we have. Yes, it's true. Our our present bodies will someday share in Christ's glorious resurrection. 
And that truth gives us motivation. It motivates us and leads us to godly living today. Last week we read from Romans 6. And we read in verse 4, We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And then in verse 11, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Why do we do that? Because we are not dead, but alive, just as Christ is alive. He's the risen Savior. And we are united to Him. And because that is so, our lives reflect the reality of a Savior who has conquered sin and death. Looking to Him, we too, we can and we will conquer sin and death. Uh, you hear this and maybe you think to yourselves, well, you know, Pastor, that sounds, that sounds good, but it sounds so abstract. How can, how can we do that? What does that mean practically speaking? Well, we all have different things that tempt us. Things that we struggle with. And for that reason, I'm, I'm reluctant to give a concrete example. Instead, let's try and use a template. Something that will fit every situation. The simplest way to say this is that when we're, we're tempted, we need to talk to ourselves. Though we may not all admit it, we all do this anyway. You don't talk out loud, maybe, but you're conversing within your heart. And when you're tempted, your heart needs to hear the call of the Gospel. Believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Tell yourself, fix your eyes on Jesus. Why do you do that? Because through faith, you're joined to Him. And then you go on and you tell yourself, how can I do this sin when I'm united to Him? How can I, who have died to sin, still live in it? How can I let sin reign in this body of mine, this, this body, that is someday going to be glorified? None of that fits with who I am. You see, what you're doing there is reflecting and meditating on what God says to you in Scripture. It's all scriptural truths. Scripture says that through faith you are united to the risen Christ. Now go! Live like it! Live like it right now with the body that you have that will someday be made like His glorious body. Live like it right now with that body that Christ bought for Himself. It's His. It belongs to Him. United to Him. It's in this way that Christ's resurrection motivates us and, and guides us to a godly and Christ-like life. And that brings us to something else that the resurrection motivates us towards. It not only creates a, a new way of looking at ourselves, it also gives us a new vision with respect to our neighbors. From what we confess about Christ's resurrection and ours, it's clear 
that God cares about the entire person, body and soul. Now, if this is true, then this will affect how we regard our neighbors as well, whether they're believers or unbelievers. We can think here especially of our, our unbelieving neighbors. Remind ourselves that they're not simply souls needing to be saved. They're people made up of both body and soul together. And Christ is the Redeemer of both body and soul. Now how is that going to affect how we look at them? Well, if the risen Christ saves body and soul, saves the whole person, wouldn't also His redeemed people also care about both the bodies and souls of those around them? Wouldn't our union with the risen Christ mean that we're also looking to justice and mercy for the physical needs of our neighbors? You know, there are so many different ways that can be worked out. So many different ways. But just think of something so basic as donating blood. Through that, we show that we care not only for the souls of the lost around us, but also for their physical well-being in the here and now. And like I said, we could add so many examples to that. And of course, that can never, ever take the place of speaking the gospel. After all, what people do with the gospel, or don't do with it, has eternal consequences. Regardless of what happens to their bodies, everybody will face judgment. Therefore, we should pray for and seize whatever opportunities we can to speak about Christ. But at the same time, He is the risen Christ, who also in His life and ministry here on earth showed that He cared for the physical needs of others. So we too, we will be motivated to a full-orbed compassion for those around us. Beloved, we we have a, a glorious risen Savior. In Him, we have riches, past, present, and future. His benefits give comfort for believers. The risen Savior holds out comfort for one and all, for body and soul. Believe the Gospel and know the comfort. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise Your holy name for raising Jesus our Savior from the dead on the third day. Lord God, we celebrate this fact today and every day. We thank You for the testimony of Your Word to this glorious historical truth. We thank You for the witness of the apostles. Help us to believe what You have revealed. Help us so that we would never doubt, that we would never be confused about this. Father, we thank You for the pledge contained in Christ's resurrection. It is indeed sweet to the mouth of our hearts. We so look forward to sharing in His resurrection in the age to come. We pray that the day would hasten. As we wait for that great day, help us to see ourselves as we are in Him. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus also as we, we face temptations and struggles in this world. 
We pray that as Christ was victorious over sin and death, we would share in His victory over the remaining sin in our lives. And Father, we also pray that You would help us to show compassion to those around us. Help us to be sensitive, not only to their spiritual need for a Savior in Jesus Christ, but also to their physical needs. Father, please draw us more and more into conformity to Christ's image. We ask that you would please hear us as we pray in the name of our risen Lord. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.